Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you uh, have traveled to be with family and you're here this, uh, this morning, uh, we welcome you. I know there's uh, a number uh, here of home and, and traveling, uh, so glad you're here. If you are traveling this week, uh, may God give you safety and a great time of, uh, of fellowship, but I uh, hope you'll be able to join us on Tuesday. Speaking of traveling, do you ever listen to, have you ever heard of uh, Rick Steves? He's kind of the travel guru. Um, he uh, explains that when you travel, you will run into two kinds of fellow travelers. There are those who are traveling light, and there are those who wish they had. <laughs> because, you know, it can be a real pain to travel. He uh, suggests six words uh, when you travel that are extremely helpful. Pack light. Pack light, pack light. Be careful how you travel. Another expert gave this piece of wisdom. Uh, when preparing to travel, lay out all your clothes and lay out all your money, then take half of your clothes and double the money. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Have you ever gone on, on vacation or travel and, and you think, why did I take all this stuff? I don't need it. I was chuckling, Lisa and I were talking um, the other day, reminiscing about when she and our, our, our daughter, one of our daughters, at that time 18, went to China with a group of people. And um, <laughs> she, um, I hope she doesn't mind us sharing this, but uh, <laughs> who cares? When you're a pastor's kid, that's what happens, right? Um, so she takes, packs in the suitcase the entire bottle, the whole bottle of shampoo. You only need 10 days. You only need a little thing like that. And she took the entire, entire bottle of shampoo. And my wife was trying to talk her out of it. Like, you know, pack light, pack light, pack light. Um, it's amazing how sometimes we get caught up in what we think we need. It's, I think, a great uh, metaphor, this idea of traveling light, for how we should travel the road of life. There was a 19th century American tourist uh, traveling over in Poland, and he came to a home of a particular Polish rabbi by the name of Heifetz Kayim. And he walked into Heifetz Kayim's home, and he, he saw it was stark. It was, there was some books, and there was a table and a chair, and that was it. And the traveler said, where's, where's all your furniture? And the rabbi said, where's yours? And the traveler said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm just... I'm a tourist. I'm traveling through. And the rabbi said, so am I, just traveling through. There's wisdom to that. Socrates is reported to have said, the secret of happiness is not found in seeking more, but in, in developing the capacity to enjoy less. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about traveling light. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Now, I don't want to throw cold water on this Christmas season. I realize there's only, what, three more shopping days till Christmas, and maybe some of you are, haven't started yet. Uh, I read this last week. The average American is going to spend $920 on Christmas gifts this Christmas. So there's your standard there. The average, $920. That's going to amount to over a trillion dollars of spending in this country for Christmas gifts. Now, in that same article, it said, um, 
8% of Americans aren't going to spend anything at all on Christmas gifts. And I, and I hope those are members of your family and not mine. Um, but Jesus had a lot to say about this idea of, of stuff, of wealth, of money. We're going to look at three passages this morning. Here's one of them, Luke 12. Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Then we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And then Luke 18. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Three important statements as we continue in this series of the living word and looking at some of these statements that Jesus made. Let's look at the first one. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, we read where um, somebody in the crowd, it says, uh, came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance, the family inheritance, with me. Uh, of course, we don't know the setting or the situation. Parents had died. The wealth of the family, uh, someone's hoarding it. Teacher, tell my brother to divide it with me. His response in verse 14 is quite direct. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then that's when Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now to drive home that statement, that point, Jesus tells this familiar parable, this story. Verse 16, he told them a parable, and he said, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself and saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will save my soul. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus, as he's telling this story, I'm sure, Maybe there was a, a wealthy landowner nearby, a, a, a wealthy farm, the barn's there, and Jesus points to it. Um, people hearing this story may have said, gee whiz, I wish I was that wealthy farmer. But then Jesus adds this, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now, who will own what you have prepared? Jesus' final conclusion, verse 21, So it is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. To whittle it down, Jesus is just simply saying, life does not consist of one's possessions. Life does not consist of one's possessions. If we think it does, Jesus has a word for us. Fool. 
If our focus in this life is the amassing of things, the stuff of materialism, if our goal, if our drive in life is to get ahead as fast as we can, to amass the most that we can, to spend money, to, a, to acquire things, as if that is what life is all about, Jesus says, that's utter foolishness. Now, there's nothing wrong with hard work, obviously. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that we have. There's nothing wrong with planning well. And God says he gives us everything richly to enjoy. Nothing wrong with that at all. Unless that's how we're defining life. That, that real living is, I've got to get that. Oh, if I just had this, if I had that. If that's how we're defining life, then Jesus said, that's utter foolishness. That's a sad but maybe accurate description, commentary on our society today, is it not? People spending their entire lives laying up treasures here on earth to the ignorance of God, forgetting who he is, ignoring him completely, and then one day, it's over. This very night, your soul is required of you. Then who's going to have all that stuff? You might be here today and haven't really thought much about what comes after this life. You may be here today and thinking that I've got plenty of time to deal with the ever after. And of course, deep in our souls and not so deep in our minds, we certainly can accept the fact that we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Are we prepared for eternity? That's one of the things I think Jesus would want us to wrestle with. Have we come to that place in our journey of life where we have concluded that there is more to life than amassing the things of life? Have we come to a point where we have put our trust in Jesus? Have we settled the issue of eternity so that when we die, we have a home in heaven awaiting us. The good news, as it's heard over and over and over again in this Christmas season, is that God so loved this world. He gave his son, and Jesus came to this earth, and he ultimately came to die on the cross and pay for our sins so that we could have an eternal relationship with the eternal God. And God so loved you, and Jesus died for your sins. He paid the penalty for you so he can offer you today the free gift of eternal life. Free gift of eternal life. Best offer there is. Have you put your trust in Christ? I'd invite you this Christmas season, settle the issue of eternity. But again, I would assume most of us in this room have done that. And yet we too can spend our energies focusing on the things of this life get so caught up in the acquisition of things to the detriment of our relationship with God. And God calls such a person, and it's pretty direct, oh, you fool. This very night, your life is required. 
How silly to spend one's whole life storing up treasures on earth and not being rich towards him. Beware, says Jesus. Life does not consist. Real living, as God defines life in abundance, does not consist of the things of life. That has everything to do not with external possessions, but with internal possessions. Hey, parents, I know it's fun. It's a great time of year. Uh, we just got a brand new little grandbaby, number eight, went down to Charlottesville to hold her. <laughs> um, and um, it's exciting. Kids get excited around the Christmas trees and the presents and all that. But, you know, what a great opportunity. And I know you parents, many of you are doing this. God bless you for directing their thoughts away from the materialism. And you're directing them to, to say, hey, there's a greater gift. That's a gift of a Savior. Um, let's, let's focus on that this Christmas. If, if, if all our things were removed from us, our homes, our electronic gadgets, our, I mean, if, if, if we were like that rabbi in Poland and everything was gone but a table and a chair, could we still praise the Lord and be content? We, we get so used to things. Lisa got rear-ended two months ago by somebody on the way home from something. And um, cosmetic problem, you know, the back door and the side panel and stuff like that. And so we fixed it. But the problem, it's an old car. It's got over 200,000 miles on it, uh, 2,000. And wouldn't you know it, the, you know, the amount of damage, it totaled the car. But it's far more valuable to us to fix it, then spend money to get a, who knows what, a used, another used car? No. So we went ahead and fixed it. But it's totaled. Now, if you've ever had that experience before, you know that I, I did. What a pain it is. We waited six months to get the auto body place to get it fixed. You know why? Because there's so many deer around here smashing up cars, and we were behind, so there was a delay in getting the thing fixed. We got it fixed. And then you have to go through all the rigmarole. If you've done this, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to get it reinspected. DMV requires you've got to get it reinspected. And then you've got to send all the documentation with $125 down to Richmond. $125. Do you know why? To get a salvage title and then get it reinspected by, uh, I think, a state patrolman. Dan Scott, where are you when I needed you? <laughs> it's already been inspected, but you got to spend $125 to get it reinspected. So I called down to DMV, sent the paperwork, certified mail. I know they got it. Sent my $125. $125. Merry Christmas to the state of Virginia. And the guy on the other end said, I said, so when can we get this scheduled? Oh, we'll call you. I said, well, when might that be? Because we're out of the car now for two months. He said, it probably might be within two months. Yeah, groan, yeah, collective groan. Can you imagine that? And it's just stuff. It's just a car. And sometimes God takes stuff away, maybe just to remind us, life doesn't consist of things. 
Let's look at the second statement over in chapter 16. This is an interesting story. Chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, a parable that is considered one of the more difficult ones that Jesus ever delivered. Um, let's pick up with verse 1, chapter 16 of Luke. Now he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a, main, uh, a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And so he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Giving, give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Well, verse 3, the manager said to himself, oh, what shall I do since my master has taken the management away from me? And I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he concocted this plan, verse 5. He summoned each one of the master's debtors, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And in verse 6 he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly, write it 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a oh, hundred measures of wheat. He said, take it, take, take it, write your bill, make it 80. He was, he was a conniving, dishonest steward, looking out for his own skin. But when the master found out about it, verse 8, he praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in the relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Jesus, the master storyteller, <laughs> is telling an incredible story. In fact, uh, back in the fourth century, a person by the name of Julian the Apostate used this story, this parable of Jesus, to discredit or attempt to discredit Christianity by saying their Lord, their master, teaches dishonesty and thievery. A rich man being taken by his steward. The steward being praised for being shrewd. What is Jesus suggesting here? The sons of this age, unbelievers, are far more clever. They're far more shrewd in how they deal with each other than the sons of light. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you, are you giving us permission to connive and cheat and better ourselves? Well, obviously not. Look at verse 9. He says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. To understand what Jesus is saying, we need to break this down a little bit. Make friends for yourselves by the means of the mammon, the wealth of unrighteousness. What is that? Well, that's material things, money. And it says, so when it fails, meaning when you die, when the things of this world are over, they will receive you into eternal dwellings heaven. Now you put it all together, what is Jesus saying? Use 
the resources you have. Use the unrighteous mammon. Use the money, the possessions that you have in such a way to influence people with the gospel. So that when all those things of this earth are over, you have friends in heaven waiting to welcome you. Because the only thing we can take to heaven is a friend. What can people do with the material things God has given us to influence people for the gospel? This is the question Jesus wants us to ask. The sons of this age, the unbelievers, take far more care. They're far more clever. They're far more sophisticated in trying to figure out how to use material things, their money, for their own selfish gain, of course. Jesus is saying the sons of light, God's people, should be just as clever, just as wise and sophisticated. Use what you have to win people for Christ. Use your wealth to win people for Christ. It's a whole new way of looking at money, of looking at our material things. How can we use what we have to impact people? Do we even you know, think that way? It's, it's, it's difficult. It typically is not the American way of thinking, obviously, even the American Christian mindset. It's how can I better position my portfolio? How can I move this around? How can I acquire a little bit more here? And Jesus is saying, no, there are people out there who need to get to heaven. Use what you have to influence them. Make friends by unrighteous mammon. So when it fails, they'll receive you. How does it work? Well, I don't know. It can work a million different ways. Your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus is sick. He can't mow his yard, so you put your gas into your mower and you go mow his yard. Or you put your gas into your snowblower and you blow the snow off his driveway. That's five bucks of gas. But you may just influence him and have an opportunity to share Jesus with him. You take a non-Christian co-worker out for lunch. You pay for it. An opportunity, a friendly chat, praying all along that maybe God will open a door of opportunity that some comment he'll make that you can insert something about the Lord. 20, 30 bucks, it's not much, but it can influence somebody potentially with the gospel. You have a, a friend or a co-worker, a single mom who has a 12-year-old son. Dad is not around, so you, 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 you take him to the ball game and take him out for pizza afterwards or ice cream. 50 bucks spent, it could change a life. And, I, and all Jesus is saying is, maybe we just need to begin thinking that way. Consider it. Give generously to a church like FBC that has a, a robust missions ministry. Support a young couple like, like Joel and Rachel McManigal who are going this coming year to Thailand. Uh, be a part of their giving team. See how you can support them. How can you use what God has given you to make a difference for all of eternity? Our wealth, 
our possessions are going to fail one day, says Jesus. But if we use them wisely, there will be people who will welcome us into glory. Let's go to the third passage, Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. It's that passage where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, words, I'm sure, that were extremely troublesome to the people who heard it. Let's pick it up with verse 18. Because it says there was a, a ruler who questioned him in verse 18, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's take this guy at face value as a, a sincere, honest request. As a respectful greeting, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The strange response of Jesus in verse 19 is this, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Isn't that a little bit demeaning here? He comes up honestly with a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Good teacher, why, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. A strange response, and yet it's precisely the issue that this man needed to begin to wrestle with. We know from other passages, and we'll see in just a moment, this is a rich, young, powerful mover and shaker of society. He was a man that was probably the envy of most other people in that society. Clearly, this man, in, at least in that Jewish culture of the day, was evidencing the blessing of God. He must be a righteous man to have all those blessings. That's how they would view it. And when Jesus answered and said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. He's trying to get this man to realize that if what he just said is true and there's only one who is good and that's God, then he, the rich, young, powerful person there, was maybe not as good as he thought he was. Because he comes before Jesus with a certain self-righteousness. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, verse 20, he continued and says, well, you know the commandments. And he quotes the Ten Commandments, or some of them. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Why this reference to the Old Testament law? You know, the Ten Commandments. The first four of those commandments were laws relegating one's relationship vertically to God. The last six of those Ten Commandments were laws relegating or... Uh, a governing man's relationship horizontally to one another. And that's the ones he quotes here. You know what the law says. Don't commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Why did Jesus quote the law? Well, because that's what the law was for. God gave the law to reveal how holy he was how good he was, and how unholy we were. He gave the law and said, this is my standard, fulfill it. Knowing full well, no one could. He gave a law 
that no one could keep to show how utterly impossible it was to do anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus is properly using the law the way it was meant to be used. He graciously, mercifully points this rich, powerful, young ruler. What does the law say? Now, his answer, the young guy's answer, verse 21, well, all these things I've kept from my youth up. Self-righteous? I'm pretty good. And so now Jesus has him. Verse 22, he hears this and he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Why did Jesus tell him, sell everything you have? Give it all away? I mean, Jesus just missed an opportunity, did he not? To evangelize? I mean, it's like he, Jesus missed out on evangelism 101. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what the answer is. Believe, trust, it's faith and faith alone. And yet Jesus is telling him to go sell everything. Give to the poor. Come follow me. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? Because he's answering this guy's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's attempting to gain eternal life by his doing. And so Jesus says, okay, if you want to gain eternal life by your doing, then you've got to do it the way God requires. You must obey the law 100%. Well, I've kept all these from my youth up. Oh, you have? Sell all your possessions. Give it all away to the poor. Come follow me. And verse 23 says, When he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich. And maybe for the first time, this rich, young, powerful leader of Judaism maybe for the first time is beginning to realize maybe I'm not so good after all. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus is actually talking about a sewing needle. I know there's some think there's a gate called Needle Gate in Jerusalem. And by the way, those 40 or 50 of you who are leaving Thursday for Israel, go to Jerusalem and see if you can find the Needle Gate while you're there. I think Jesus is saying it's easier for a big fat old camel to be shoved through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. This is shocking. It's shocking because, again, in that culture... It was assumed that if you had means, if you were wealthy, that was an evidence of your righteousness. People equated righteousness with wealth. Look at the response, verse 26, when Jesus said that. Well, then who can be saved? And he said in verse 27, the th things that are impossible with people 
are possible with God. And so here's his bottom line. For anyone to get to heaven, it takes a miracle of God. He's warning that wealth and riches, the focus of, of accumulating and amassing the things of this world, it can be very deceptive. It can be very time-consuming. It can get our eyes off of what is the essential. It can hinder us from getting to heaven. Because we get all occupied with the things of this world to the neglect of what's coming. Three stories, three words by Jesus. He's taught in these three passages that money, material things, can actually make us out to be fools. Because it, it's not what we possess that really defines what life is all about. He's told us that material things and the accumulating of, of wealth and that focus on that can actually hinder us from getting to heaven. But he's also told us that if we use it rightly, if we understand how to use it rightly, we can have wonderful eternal rewards, friends and family members who've been influenced for the gospel. This Christmas, I don't think God is probably asking us to go home this afternoon and, and take the presents that we've already bought, unwrap them, return them back to the store, take the money and support some missionary organization. I don't think that it, He's asking us to do that. But He certainly is wanting us to examine our hearts and how we view the material things, not just at this time of year, but all throughout the year. I think he wants us to examine our lives and maybe consider that life, as someone once said, is like a chess game. There's kings and there's queens and there's bishops and knights and there's the lowly pawns, but when the game's over, those pieces all go back into the same box. It's a story of a young man having a conversation with a wiser, older man. The young man is telling the old man his plans for life. I can't wait to go to college. And the older man said, oh, well then what? The young man said, well, I'm going to get, I'm going to, get the best job I can get. Oh, well then what? He says, well, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to amass a, I'm going to make a lot of money. Well, then what? The young guy said, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to invest it. I'm going to build my, my retirement portfolio. Oh, well, good. Well, then what? Well, then I guess um, I'll enjoy my wealth and retire happily. Well, good. Well, then what? And there was a long pause, and the young man thoughtfully considered, and then he said, I guess I, I, guess I get old and die. To which the old man said, then what? 
You see, it's that last then what that can determine the whole course of our now what. This is what Jesus is asking us to consider. Because in the final analysis, it's not how long we live, it's how well we live. In the final analysis, it's not what we have acquired, it's not what we possess, it's who possesses us. Is that not what we celebrate this Christmas season? Is not Jesus the greatest model of that? This is how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. As we sing our Christmas carols, as we close the service off in just a moment, as we eat our Christmas feasts and as we open our Christmas gifts, Isn't that what we as God's people need to consider? Jesus left his throne in glory, the splendor of heaven. He who was rich entered our world. He became poor. He divested himself of all those divine privileges. He set them aside. And he came into our world. And he died for us. Because he loved us. May God grant us his grace to be like Jesus and to travel light. Would you bow your head in prayer, please? And so, Father, thank you for the opportunities you give us this season and, and then beyond, Father. But certainly this time of year when when we can maybe shop till we drop and, and yet have fun doing it with family and watch those kids giggle with delight or those grandkids squeal with joy, to be with family, to be with our friends, to come with thankful hearts, Father, for the realization that every good gift comes from you and the, the ability to gather with family, to to. to eat feasts together and open up gifts uh, is because of your gracious hand. But Father, help us also to be mindful um, that, that when the game is over, we all go back in the same box and then what? And that the only thing we really can take to heaven is a friend. Father, we don't want to wear the label fool or stand before you one day and said, but Mark, I, you had so many opportunities, so many opportunities to influence someone else for the gospel. It, it wouldn't have cost much, but I blessed you with this. You could have used it this way. Or we can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Father, each of us in this room, young and old alike, as always when we come face to face with your word, we have, to, we have some spiritual inventory we have to take, some, some spiritual wrestling with you that we have to do. Uh, we have to take a look at our own heart. And so 
as we sing our songs and enjoy our meals and open our presents, may we be reminded, Father, that as we travel through this life, oh, Father, give us grace to travel light. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.